First letter to Timothy, chapter 4, and we'll be reading the entirety of the chapter. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask now that by your Spirit's power, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. It's Pentecost Sunday, a day we mark the gift of the Spirit to the early church. You'll remember if you've read Acts 2, the story of Pentecost and a number of remarkable events and signs that marked and signaled that decisive event. You'll remember wind came through signifying God's power. And if we're honest, today in discussions about the Spirit and Pentecost, oftentimes a a wind of power is not what we experience, but rather a breeze of confusion and chaos. You'll remember that on that moment, tongues of fire descended upon the very heads of those gathered in that room for prayer. And today, as we consider conversations about the Spirit and Pentecost, more often than not, we don't find illuminating light, but we find much disagreement. Third, we see on that Pentecost day that the unity of the church was symbolized in that those from different tribes, tongues, and nations, those who spoke in different language since Babel of old, They could hear the word in their own language. 
symbolizing the fact that God wanted to draw from every tribe, tongue, and nation a single people. And so the the beauty of a unified church was symbolized there through that remarkable linguistic expression. And yet today, talk of the Spirit and of Pentecost so often is something that brings about fissures and fractures and divides. It's ironic. It's sad. And yet it's such a significant event and truth that it's worth considering again who the Holy Spirit is, and why the gift of the Spirit is a good and necessary thing for the church. And not just for the church of old, or the church gathered in this place, but for you. For a man, woman, or child, born of God, united to Christ, set on a mission in this time and place, and now given the Holy Spirit to that end, and for that reason... And so as we explore the nature of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit graciously in our midst, I want to turn to a text where Paul begins very explicitly by speaking about the Holy Spirit. Paul is writing these words to Timothy, his understudy, a younger pastor in training, someone who has been reared in the faith by, we learn in in, 2 Timothy 1, by a grandmother, Lois, and a mother, Eunice, who are themselves faithful. He's been steeped in the scriptures, and he has apparently, in these verses we hear, been set apart for ministry by the laying on of hands and the blessing of his calling as a pastor. And we gather from this and other texts that Timothy has been commissioned to serve as the pastor in the church of Ephesus, a significant calling. You may remember in reading the New Testament that Ephesus is a rather remarkable church. Paul wrote many letters this one included, and in each and every one of them, he has to intervene in a problem, right? We're not the first ones to screw up church from time to time, as it were. There's perhaps some comfort to be found in that, that we're not pathbreakers, though we are painful in the way in which we sometimes go about things and struggle and sin. In the New Testament, each and every letter written to a church involves an exhortation and a rebuke with one exception, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That community was a community so marked by peace, grace, and hope that Paul didn't have to intervene. Don't get too idealistic. We read now Paul writing to the next pastor, as it were, to Timothy, who will care for those people. And in this passage, he warns that problems are coming. Any season of ease and comfort, as described in Ephesians, is likely not to last this side of Eden and short of heaven. And so Timothy's warned here of difficulties, not from outside, but from within. And of course, we hear of Ephesians again in Revelation as we have those seven letters to the churches, and Ephesus, we see, is struggling yet again, though Timothy has put Paul's words into motion and has brought about uh, pastoral care and reform, as it were. We see that problems which crept in and had to be dealt with have crept in yet again. And through John's words there, we hear that the church needs to hear anew of its first love, of the grace of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. And I suspect we're a lot like that, that there are seasons of ease and comfort and joy and excitement and growth, and yet 
inevitably and invariably, you personally and we as a community, we enter into times of struggle. Often struggle due to the forces from outside which seem to confront us and challenge us and make life difficult. But I think if we're honest, just as often because we haven't been faithful, we haven't been diligent, we haven't leaned into God's grace, we've perhaps lifted our chin, believed in our own strength, relied upon our own wisdom, and failed to receive gift upon gift that God would have for us. And so these words to this pastor for that church are, I submit, words to you and to me and for the church of this day in Vero, in Florida, in the U.S. Well, what do we see here? These are words about spirits, spirituality, and the spirit. And they're words that confront a problem that is either creeping in or soon to creep in, and it's a problem that we continue to see generation after generation. Some of you will be able to put faces and names to what's described here in a document from antiquity of old. We see in the first five verses that Paul rebukes and rejects a spirituality of ironically easy rigor. Look at verses 1 to 5 with me. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There are a number of things we can see in this description of error. We see, of course, that it's brought about through deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. But that's never the way falsehood presents itself, is it? You don't have a demonic ghost appear at your door beckoning you to follow. Rather, you encounter what we read of here in verse 2 as the instrument of a demon, as the mouth of a deceitful spirit. Verse 2 describes it as the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. No one falls prey to the overt call of Satan himself. He takes the form of a wise serpent. He takes the form of a gentle neighbor or friend. He takes the form of the unobservable but constant and ceaseless pressure of a community and a culture. He takes many forms, doesn't he? And yet all are insincere. All are liars. They're false. They're leading us away from the truth. Well, what's the particular lie here? The particular lie here is is described twofold. Rejection and abstinence. Rejection of foods and abstinence from marriage. Notice it doesn't say abstinence from sex simply, but from marriage specifically. It's not suggesting that we ought to forsake immoral sexual practice, right, or disallowed sexual activity, but that the divinely designed place for proper sexual expression, even that is to be abstained from. And so, whether it's rejecting food or abstaining from marriage itself, a calling and gift of God, there is a rigor being described here. There's a form of what we 
call in ancient terms asceticism, those who would put aside certain things for a greater good that's being described here. And of course, there's a biblical asceticism that we would take up our cross and follow Christ, that we would be willing to lose anything for his sake. But this is a particular version of it and a deviation of it. And at first glance, I suspect it strikes you as rather rigorous. This is how you wind up not eating certain things on Fridays. This is how you wind up thinking that a monk or a celibate person is somehow necessary to be truly holy and spiritual. Right? But notice Paul's description of the people who practice this. I want to suggest it's ironically easy rigorism that he's rejecting here, not truly rigorous spirituality. In verse 2, he says that this occurs through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a remarkable image. The conscience is seared. It takes me back to being a young man learning to play guitar. And whether you've played guitar or some other string instrument, you'll know uh, that as you begin with your fingers to pluck and to pick, it hurts and they're sensitive. And you're quite aware of every strike to a string. And yet what happens is that over time, you develop calluses upon your fingertips. And having done so at length and consistently, you no longer feel them with the same sensitivity. You don't experience the same kind of initial pain from striking those strings with your fingers. You are calloused or seared such that it no longer pains you. It no longer actually costs you anything. Now, that's good for a guitarist, of course. It's essential. You need calloused fingers, as it were. That's terrible for a conscience. This is describing people who are happy to give up certain things. It doesn't cost them anything anymore. It's a lot like the Pharisees and Jesus' rebuke of them. We oftentimes think the Pharisees were so remarkably rigorous. And in certain respects, that's true. They would hedge the law and have certain rules that, you know, of course, if you're not allowed to, to sleep with a certain person, then the Pharisee of old would be the one who'd suggest you ought not dance with them lest you wind up in bed with them, right? They would fence the law. They would keep you away from it. And yet Jesus confronts them often in Matthew 5 or Matthew 19 or Matthew 24, saying, you have actually undersold the law. You have treated it as rigorous in certain areas, but not seen its full call. And so in Matthew 5, he says that you won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. It doesn't mean you sin less. He means you realize God's call affects your whole life. The Pharisees believed you had to be remarkably rigorous in showing care and concern to certain people, to your neighbor. But Jesus has to tell a parable, parable of the Good Samaritan, to say, unlike the Pharisees, your neighbor is a category that extends to a lot of people you might wish it didn't. And yes, you do have to show care and concern to your family, to your neighbor, to your friends. But he reminds us the law calls us to, to show care and concern even to your enemy, even to one from a different and opposing tribe or people. The Pharisees had gone rigorous with the law, but they had also minimized its effect on our lives. And that's precisely the image and the condemnation Paul brings here, that they have seared their consciences, these 
teachers, these deceitful and insincere liars. They have suggested that spirituality is about certain things, what you eat and the fact that you don't sleep with people. And they demand radical obedience there, but they limit God's call to those symbolic concerns. You've probably met people like this. I certainly have. There are folks who may believe that spirituality involves not drinking certain things, not partaking of movies or playing cards, perhaps. And yet, it clearly doesn't somehow call them away from cultural arrogance, from racist prejudice, from looking upon others with a downward glance as if they aren't as human as they are. That's to have a rigorous notion of holiness perhaps in one area, what you can eat or drink, but a pretty myopic notion of God's care and concern for your life, isn't it? As if God cares about your diet, but not about your relations with others. As if God cares about your marriage, but not the way you treat someone in the marketplace. And we see here, Paul says, far from being too rigorous, that's too lame. That's too myopic. That's to sell short the call of Christ on our lives. You may remember a century ago, you weren't alive then, of course, but you may have heard it. The famous theologian and politician. Back then, they had politicians who were theologians. Anyhow, it's a different world. Um, Abraham Kuyper was both a professor of theology, a founder of a university, and prime minister of the Netherlands. He makes me feel very lazy. And he famously, upon a trip over here to the States, said what has been much quoted, that there is not a square inch on this earth over which Christ doesn't say mine and claim it as Lord. The entire cosmos is Christ, and he cares about all of it. But it's very easy for you and I to take that truth, and it is a beautiful truth, and to think, that doesn't apply to me. I mean, I don't run a country like Kuiper did. I don't even run a university like Kuiper did. I'm just small me. That's grandiose, and the big significant people out there ought to care and concern about that. So I think we ought to apply that personally and say, there's not one nook or cranny of your life that Jesus Christ doesn't say mine over. And just as he cares over the whole cosmos, so he cares for the whole Christian. And spirituality for the Christian is not about simply checking certain rigorous boxes of small snippets of your life, but about holistic conformity of you to the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul's response. Here in verses 4 and 5, he says, For everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say they reject food and they discount marriage and it's okay to eat whatever you want and to get married and and live how you wish in your family. He doesn't say that. He says we're to receive everything created as good from God, but we're only to receive it, we're only to receive it with thanksgiving. It's not evil, it's not intrinsically wrong, but that doesn't make it intrinsically holy. Notice verse 5 says, it's made holy by the word of God and by prayer. 
That's a difficult spirituality. That's a a rather nuanced calling, isn't it? It's not as simple as give all that up, nor is it as easy and straightforward as have as much as you want. We're actually called to a lifestyle of faith, and we're given a spirit who is, in this text and in others like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 2, a spirit of wisdom and discernment. And God wants you, and God expects you, and God graces you so that you grow up into maturity, so that you can discern when to make use of those good gifts and to do so with thankfulness and prayerfulness. And when to not make use of them, not because they're evil, but because they don't lead to greater good. They don't serve Christ's kingdom. They don't bless you, and they don't serve your neighbor well. We're called to discernment in our spirituality, not to the easy, simplistic rules of the naysayers, nor, if we're honest, to the consumerist mentality that we love to experience, believing that Jesus has us covered on Judgment Day so we can do whatever we want here and now. That we'll behave perhaps on Sunday, or at 11 o'clock perhaps. But when we're at the buffet, we can eat whatever we want. We can be indulgent. We can be debaucherous. That when we're at the party, we can simply drink as much as we want, so long as we don't put anyone in harm. That when we're pursuing our relationships, we know marriage is good, And so long as we marry a Christian and we don't cheat on them, we can treat them in any which way we want. Those are good gifts, food and drink and marriage. They're not evil. They're not wrong. They're not sinful. To be a Christian, you don't have to somehow abstain or reject them. And yet, they're not intrinsically holy. They have to be received with thanksgiving, knowing that they come from God and that there's a greater good. They have to be made holy by the word of God, his direction, his commands, his wisdom, his law guiding how we live out those blessings. They have to be made holy by prayer, that we know that they are not the ultimate good, but that we long for something greater and they are instruments and tools to lead us there and to sustain us on that journey. And so the first thing we see in these first five verses is Paul's call away from this ironically easy rigorism and a call to a deeper discernment and a spirituality that involves the wise path of figuring out how prayerfully and thankfully to make good use of God's good gifts. Notice a couple more things that we can see a little more briefly as Paul commends this kind of spirituality, to Timothy and through him to the Ephesians and to us as well. Secondly here in verses 6 to 10, he speaks of a living hope. Paul realizes that he's doubling down. He said these ascetic teachers who are saying, don't eat this or don't do that, they call to a certain rigorism, and he's saying you've got to actually not simply give up your food, but your very life. The one who gives up his life will find it, Jesus says. That's more radical And Paul's well aware that's not an easy pill to swallow. He's aware that's not natural for us to give up the reins and the controls, as it were. And so he, in these verses, gets underneath the calling, the challenging calling, and he addresses our motivations. 
Notice, first of all, how he describes the calling. In verse 6, he uses the image of following, of following God's call and of Christ's example. In verse 7, of casting aside what's silly or irreverent, what's distracting, you might say, and, and what is lacking substance. In verse 7, he also uses this image of training for godliness, and he's just talked about bodily training, so it's an athletic comparison, the same kind of rigor and ardor that you would put into training your body, to exercising, to going to the gym and meeting with a trainer, that you would put in that and even more in training for godliness. And then in verse 10, describing that as toiling and even striving, right? The kind of resolve and commitment that you've got to show as you're winding down the end of your run and your legs start to feel like mush, or your muscles start to tighten and your breath gets short and you really would like to stroll or maybe just to sit on a couch and yet you toil and you strive. Spirituality is that way. Discerning God's call, maintaining thankfulness and prayerfulness is that way. It gets tiring at times and we grow weak and Paul calls us to that serious commitment But he doesn't do it apart from saying why on earth you would think this is beautiful. In verse 8, he says, this godliness that you practice and toil for and strive unto holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And he reiterates it by saying this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full approval. In other words, I really mean it. I'm not joking around. This is the ultimate motivation, that it's good for this life and for the life to come. Think of the benefits you desire in getting on that exercise bike or going to the gym. You hope to have fewer medical complications. You hope to have greater energy levels. You hope to be able to avoid troubles and to be able to make use of your body and your energy in better ways for for higher ends, right? Those are all good things. And Paul says training for godliness likewise leads you to good things in this life. But unlike the gym, it also leads you to good things for the life yet to come. It's an eternal investment. And so the willingness you might have to give up eating certain foods or to give up certain time to devote to bodily care and training now can make sense for a time. The kind of sacrifice you would make to train in godliness is such a greater and longer lasting investment. It costs more, but it pays out dividends that go so far beyond what exercise of the body involves. Paul here is talking about the compelling power of the beauty of God. Notice the living hope he describes here is God, right? As we read in these verses, we toil and strive, verse 10 says, because we have our hope set on the living God. Not on being alive forever, not on being free from the nagging neighbor, not of no longer sinning, not of no longer having a body that breaks down. All of those are true. There will be no sin, there will be no strife, there will be no tears, there will be no struggle. Those are all good, but that's not what he says here. He says, we toil and strive to this end, having our hope set 
on the living God. God is our hope. All those other things are fringe benefits. They're glorious. They're great. They're much better than your life right now. But they pale in comparison to the beauty of the living God. And Paul addresses our need to understand that motivation, that training for godliness is training for being in God's presence, for having a heavenly-minded focus. Jesus understood this, of course. You may remember that parable from Matthew 13, 44, where he speaks of a, a man who's been wandering through a field, as it were. He finds a treasure buried, and he opens it up, and it's beautiful and precious. And so he hides it, and he goes back, and he sells everything that he has to buy that field and to possess that treasure. In lots of terms, it's a very simple, straightforward, economic example of sacrifice for the sake of later blessing, right? Giving up this, the cost, to receive that, the benefit. And there's a rather straightforward calculus that you can see running through this guy's head. But notice the, the, the words that Jesus actually says. He says, in his joy, he sold off everything he had so that he could buy that field. Jesus understands that to take up your cross and to give up your life are difficult. They're not easy. It requires a remarkable willingness to to surrender and to sacrifice what's most dear to you. And so the motivation to do so must be profound and beautiful. Not just the calculus of money, but the beauty of precious jewels, or here, the hope of the living God. If we want to be faithful and avoid easy rigor and live lives marked by the holistic call of the Spirit, we need to understand that joy and we need to constantly meditate upon it. And that gets us to the third word that Paul offers here to Timothy, the Ephesians, and us. In verses 11 to 16, he speaks of how you can maintain that joy and that motivation. Joy comes and goes, doesn't it? Sometimes even in the, the course of a very hour or a meal, a meeting, right? We can feel elated, contented, overflowing with happiness and blessedness. And one thing can be said, or one memory can come back to mind, or one question can start to haunt us in the back of our head, and it's gone, forgotten the joy that was just ours. Paul's aware of that. And so he addresses the fact that we need to sustain this motivating joy. You know, I remember a a story from one of my favorite TV shows of all time, The West Wing, where the president was being uh, counseled by an elderly senator. And the senator told him a story that he'd heard from a constituent, uh, a man who worked at an airfield. And it was an airfield on a coast, and oftentimes storms would sweep in from off the water rather quick it, quickly, and they could be rather overwhelming, as we sometimes experience here in Florida. And of course, when you're in an airplane, you have instrumentation galore. You have things to tell you your pitch, you have things to tell you whether you're level, you have things to tell you your altitude, your speed, and so forth. 
seeing out the window in one sense is sort of beyond the point. And yet this constituent spoke of working in the control tower and observing new, fresh pilots who would be in their first storm that swept in off the coast. And these are folks in million-dollar Learjets. These are folks in highly technologically capable planes. They should know where they are, how fast they're going, where they're aiming, and so forth. And yet, he said, time after time, they look out and they can't see anything. And though the instrumentation says you're level, they don't feel level, and so they make a little adjustment. And they don't feel level, and so they make another adjustment. And though the instrumentation tells you where they are, they they don't feel like it's accurate, and they make another adjustment. And he said to the senator, you would be shocked at how many people wind up coming in for their landing through the clouds, and they're flying completely upside down. Now, that's hilarious and probably dangerous all at once, but that hits home if you actually think about our spiritual lives. Because we feel a little off. We feel like this this can't be quite what following Christ looks like or feels like. Should it be this difficult this long? Or should I feel this isolated and lonely? Or should I not be seeing gains in progress here and there, perhaps for a long season? And though the instrumentation seems to suggest you're, you're on course, we'll make adjustments. We'll follow the guidance of our lesser angels, as it were. And if you're like me, sometimes you find yourself talking to a godly friend or reading the Word or prayerfully talking to God and realize you're flying completely upside down because of incremental shifts in judgment where I have deemed my wisdom greater than that of the Word, and where I have deemed my assessment of the situation more significant, what I see, than what I'm told. Well, how do we combat that? Two things here in verses 11 to 16. Two things. Notice, first of all, the significance of the Word, and in particular, the reading and preaching of the Word as the church is gathered, right? Verses 11 to 13, command and teach these things, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. As we come together, our private study and prayer is recalibrated. As we come together, our meditation on God's Word is centered because God has granted us leaders. And one thing you ought to pray and long for in your next pastor is that they will be someone who will constantly center you and recalibrate you week after week, equipping you to go read and meditate on the Word, and then as you come back, making sure that you're set, that the instrumentation reminds you, as it were, of what's true and good and beautiful. But notice, secondly, the emphasis not just on listening to the word read and preached, but also following examples who go before us. And in particular here, Timothy the pastor is to be an example. Verse 12, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In verse 15, of course, 
He goes on and says, practice these things and devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. To be an example, you don't have to be perfect. In fact, a perfect person would be a somewhat limited example to people like you and me. It's the kind of persevering progress that Timothy's supposed to demonstrate that can be of help to people who, like you and I, are in fact imperfect. And so we need to see people who exemplify what repentance looks like, what confession looks like, what humility looks like, what willingness to go make amends where we've harmed someone looks like. We see that in that description in verse 12. An example not just in speech or words, but in conduct. Not just in faith and in purity, but in love, in care and commitment for the other's good. And so as you consider that next pastor, as you consider that person who will be the leader and the chief example among many others in this congregation, you ought to pray that by the Spirit's power there will be someone who will exemplify those things, not by being ostentatiously perfect, having it all together, but by being one who walks ahead of you, demonstrating the way. And when they go astray, demonstrating how you find your way back by the Spirit's power. We see here the significant role played by the word preached and the word lived and adorned. One last thing that we see here in verse 15. You can read that phrase, devote yourselves to these things, practice them and devote yourselves to them. It's actually a remarkable word with a powerful image being used there. It's one that speaks not just to and of Timothy or to Ephesus, but I want to suggest to you and me. That that phrase of devoting yourself to it is, is literally the image of being immersed in it. Now, we may not be the most enthused about being immersed of all people or Presbyterians, right? And we might debate whether or not being fully ensconced in water is necessary for baptism, right? But this verse reminds us that there's one thing that you'd better be immersed in, in the Word of God. That it is your instrumentation. And that self-aware of your propensity and your proclivity to believe your own sight and to trust your own judgment both of which are fallible and fallen, you need to be immersed in the Word of God. And that's why in the bulletin you can observe that whether it's singing, we sing the Word. Whether it's praying, we pray the Word. Whether it's reading and listening, we read the Word. Whether it's preaching, we preach the Word. And that's meant to be not exceptional, but illustrative of your life. Deuteronomy 6 says that As soon as we confess that there's one Lord and we're to love him with all we have, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it goes on to say that we're to have his words upon our lips when we rise in the morning and when we lay down at night, when we're at rest or sitting at home, or when we're going about in town. And it describes in a variety of different ways how the word is to immerse us within it. Because that's how God, that's how the Spirit sustains us. You'll remember in John 14 and 15, Jesus, about to head to the cross, tells his beloved disciples around that table that he's to depart, and they must have been so bewildered. Can you imagine it? The one that they've given up everything for, that they've fled 
business and family, the known and the familiar to follow, that he's saying, I'm shortly going to depart. But he says, I'm sending an advocate and a comforter, the one who shows up on Pentecost and whom we remember this day. And what Jesus said of that comforter and that advocate is that he will testify to you of me. He will remind you what I've taught. The Spirit, Jared Packer tells us, is like a floodlight. Things don't go well when you go stare at a floodlight, right? You're blinded, you're useless, you're overwhelmed. Things go beautifully when you look through a floodlight at what it's directed unto. And the Spirit is directed unto Jesus and to the Word of God. Not drawing attention unto himself, but aiding us in having our attention set upon him, like the North Star. That's the gift of Pentecost. That many people in many nations who are going their own ways, sometimes fighting with each other in the course of that, are alike directed unto one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. And that the Spirit enables us, through that common instrumentation, to pursue one journey, one way, truth, and life. And so this Pentecost, as you consider what it means to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, don't fall prey to the ironically easy rigorism of those Gnostic ascetics, of the Pharisees of old, or of the legalists of today. Remember, Paul, like Jesus before him, calls us to something bigger, to something wilder, to something more costly, but to something that makes all the sense in the world because of the beauty of the God of the gospel. And remember also that spirituality is not something you're on by yourself. It's not a journey to make alone but that here, as soon as he describes the the costly call and the beautiful motivation, he also describes the means of grace by which the Spirit will sustain you for the journey. He doesn't just give you a map and tell you where to wind up. He also gives you stops along the way and company for the road. He gives you everything you need, providing grace upon grace. Let's pray and ask that we'd be mindful of that, trusting him rather than our own judgment. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that it might come upon us, that we might be immersed in it. We confess so often, though we know that we are yours, we trust our judgment. And though we know that we are yours, we have failed to follow your call. We so often trust our perceptions, we trust our intuitions, we trust our wisdom and the ways of this world. And if we're honest and observant, we see that gets us nowhere. We experience pain and alienation and disappointment and death. And yet, you are a God who did come in power in the wind of that day, and you are a God who did in tongues of fire, illumine our sight. And you are a God who has called us away from the divisiveness of our relationships in this world to the unity of your body. And you are a God who has not simply called us on a journey, but in the Spirit has come 
within and indwelt us. And so we give you thanks and praise and ask now that you would make us mindful of the Spirit's presence and of his goal in drawing us closer to Jesus our Lord and Savior. In his strong name we pray. Amen.